inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother JS to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we enter Trial of the Century Part 12, subtitled Your Honor, Sex with his nanny ruined his life. And we continue the story of the 1924 Leopold and Loeb case, the trial of the century, noting that in the midst of the roaring 20s, the era of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, Prohibition, Al Capone, Bugsy Moran, Leopold and Loeb, dominated the news for a number of years. And a study of anthropological history demonstrates that humanity does appear to maintain an inborn, innate, instinctive, you know, societal impulse that promotes and propels it to accept its necessary responsibility to rid itself of its most diseased, gangrenous members whom have shown already a propensity to cause harm to the community before failure to act allows such dysfunctional members to bring further disruption and harm to or ruination of the community. That is our impulse. Get rid of dangerous creatures. And I think it's not debatable, if not totally defensible, that such an impulse to rid society of its most dangerous elements, once they've demonstrated a capacity for evil, serves as a necessarily desirable societal societal impulse. When children are murdered, not out of not out of hatred, not out of spite or or lust or you know perversion or even for money, but for the sole purpose that it may prove itself an emotionally thrilling experience for the confessed murderers, those most gangrenous, dangerous members of society, believe the societal impulse to execute the murderers. To rid itself of such menacing creatures is not only reasonable, but a completely rational response to an atrocity that is completely beyond understanding. And whether the execution of such heartless, cold-blooded murders may or may not serve as successful deterrence to other soulless, threatening maniacs is not the point. It is actually besides the point. At minimum, the execution will have served its purpose as a deterrent to them, the executed. They won't be killing anybody else soon. I mean, does does anybody in society mourn the death, the execution of Ted Bundy or Timothy McVeigh? Is, Is our society more callous or worse off because a sadistic torture, rapist, and 
ritualistic killer of women for his own perverted sexual pleasure has been executed and a mass killer of innocence is no longer with us, no longer around to threaten our fragile communities. Does anybody think rehab might have worked for these two crazed rabid dogs, Timothy McVeigh or Ted Bundy? And even if it did, so what? Rehab for what societal benefit? So they, they might sit in their jail cells, you know, their isolation cells all alone for the next 30 years or more, better aware that raping, torturing, and sadistically killing people and, you know, men, women, and children is wrong? I mean, what good does that do society that these two can ruminate over what they have done? Why would we expend resources? Why would we bother? And, and telling victims and their families and friends to learn forgiveness, it's ridiculous, just adds to their pain. How dare we tell them that after their loss and suffering that to be moral people, to be better people, they must learn to forgive the criminals whom have destroyed their families. Screw that. Who do we think we are? You know, just cowards. I mean, do, do we believe, should we believe in 2023, we ought to forgive Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany for killing 6 million Jews in the Holocaust? Why would we do that? Why should we do such a thing? Why would anybody suggest forgiveness would be a wise, uh, responsible course of action? How about, how about we forgive or rehab Chairman Mao, Joseph Goebbels, Joseph Stalin, or, or Pol Pot? Huh? Anyway, back to 1924. It was precisely at this moment in time, in the midst of a disgusted, in the face of disgusted, angry public, in an emotional atmosphere that clamored for vengeance, rightful vengeance, with full-throated demands that imposition of the death penalty be imposed as soon as possible on, on Leopold and Loeb as the only possible means to achieve some justice for the Franks family and for society in general, that Richard Loeb's father prevailed upon the then 67-year-old Clarence Darrell to serve in the very unpopular role as the two boys lead defense counsel. And Darrell would lead the defense of Leopold and Loeb with one single objective, not to gain their acquittal. Uh-uh, no way. The only imperative to somehow save the boys from mounting that scaffold by any means possible to have them avoid the gallows. Darrell, historically, had been a notable, vociferous, outspoken, and, and just a longtime philosophical opponent of the death penalty. And he plotted his client's defense in the face of great, great hostility. He invested tremendous energy, effort, and, and expense in establishing how it might be that two recognized geniuses, sons of wealthy, wealthy families, had gone so, so far off the rails that they had plotted and murdered a teenage neighbor for no more reason than for the thrill of having done so. And then even more shockingly and grotesquely perhaps, confirmed neither felt a degree of remorse for having done so. None. 
This wasn't, this wasn't normal behavior. This wasn't rational behavior. This wasn't evidence of a sane person. For no sane person would do this. No sane person could do this. And this was evidence of, proof of, insanity. I mean, this was Clarence Darrow's primary claim, anyway. His, his principal legal argument that no one, no one in their right minds would or could do such a thing as his clients had done. They were just heinous acts for which there was no justification. But he was building toward maybe an excuse. Leopold and Loeb were not denying, Clarence Darrow was not denying on their behalf that they had not committed the atrocity. No, they admitted it. They had done every single hideous thing with which they had been charged, all of it. And they had only done so, Clarence Darrow would argue, precisely because, and only because, they were not normal human beings. They were insane. Leopold and Loeb were both victims of insanity. In fact, Darrow would argue only an insane person could or would do such a terrible thing. Stab a young neighbor to death just for fun. This wasn't just aberrational, abnormal behavior. By definition, it was textbook insane behavior. And this Darrow set out to prove. And he brought in the country's foremost psychiatric experts from all across the nation who interviewed the defendant's extensively evaluated their mental states and studied the boy's personal history, upbringing, schooling, and unearthed their behavioral past. And they, these experts, they were willing to testify in the court that the boys were insane. They had uncovered boys that, you know, had troubled past, you know, and it constituted evidence of mitigating history. This was Clarence Darrow's position anyway. Early, ver you know, I might say, say, in a, and I shouldn't be laughing, but it's an early version of the famed, you know, Twinkies defense. The Twinkies made me do it. Clarence Darrow thought it important that the world know and consider the implications of the claims. Nathan Leopold, as it turns out, had been serially molested by his governess. We now refer to them as nannies. I mean, and this allegation was established as fact, at least to Darrow's threshold. That might be interesting to psychologists and Sigmund Freud, but I say, so what? To me, that lucky boy syndrome might explain something about Nathan Leopold, but I don't believe Nathan's historical sexual liaisons with his nanny were in any way relevant to the murder, the kidnap murder of Bobby Franks. No way. As an, as an explanation for or an excuse for justification of murder, imagine the horror of the Franks family when they would learn, um, you know, they'd be forced to listen to the defense argue that their son's admitted murderer was somehow less culpable because in the past he had allegedly been having sex with his nanny. I mean, this was the historical equivalent of Ronald Goldman's father 70 years later having to sit through his son's, you know, just agonizing, agonizing murder trial where O.J. Simpson's race-baiting attorney 
Johnny Cochran argued that systemic racism in the L.A. police force excused, excused O.J. from slicing up his son. I mean, his legal, legal madness masterminded by an incompetent and tearful, mid-trial, crying, weeping Judge Ito. Just a perversion of justice for the Goldman family. I, I, and I digress for only one enjoyable moment. A couple of comments about Judge Ito and O.J. Simpson lawyer Johnny Cochran from that O.J. Simpson trial. In the 1970s, Johnny Cochran, you know, that, that bastion of integrity and whom was busy during the trial um, holding court, literally, and chastising moral authority. This is a man, Johnny Cochran, who in the 1970s had two families simultaneously and kept them unknown to each other. The man whom castigated the character and integrity of so many of the O.J. Simpson prosecutorial witnesses and the police force had two families. I mean, Johnny Cochran, one cool, trustworthy character, right? <laughs> then, then, <laughs> I, and I still find this hard to believe. Judge Ito allowed Johnny Cochran on multiple occasions to testify, actually testify from the bar that during the OJ trial, it had been brought to his attention that at a picnic somewhere at some time in the past, L.A. detective Mark Furman had been overheard, supposedly, commenting to other unknown police officers, whose identities were unknown to Johnny Cochran at that time, that Nicole Brown Simpson had had a good boob job. How Judge Ito allowed Johnny Cochran to keep mentioning this nonsense and to allow this to go on in, during the trial is simply beyond comprehension. And what does Mark Foreman's mentioning, even if he did, that Nicole Brown Simpson had had a good boob job, what does that have to do with the fact that O.J. Simpson nearly decapitated two people? Nothing. So let's return to our subject at hand. The reports circulating about Leopold and Loeb, that Leopold had had sex with his nanny, and that Leopold and Loeb, uh-oh, had engaged in some sort of homosexual activity. Again, so what? What does this have to do with the murder of Bobby Franks? If Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were busy sodomizing or blowing each other, who cares? Of what relevance has their sexual proclivities have to do with the kidnap and murder of a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks? Nothing. Perhaps, perhaps Nathan, given the fact that he had sex with his female nanny, all that nanny stuff, and then had sex with Richard Loeb, maybe Nathan was gender fluid, you know, 
intermittently doing the nanny when Loeb wasn't busy doing him or some combination of them doing each other. Who cares? But but whether Nathan Leopold might have been gender fluid, bisexual, um, metrosexual, pansexual, asexual, uh, heteroflexible, panamori, demisexual, or a variety of all these sexual identities, who gives a crap? And why would it ever be, under any circumstances, an excuse or a mitigating factor for murder? Murder of a child. Sexual identity, sexual orientation can never be a defense to or a mitigating factor in a brutal homicide. Peccadillos of a sexual nature, you know, to serve as an exculpatory rationale for the hideous criminal conduct in which two boys had admittedly engaged? I mean, really? I don't think so. Sodomy performed on each other? Not my thing. But that predilection or as justification or mitigation factor for murder, there is simply no basis to think this way. But down this legal path, Clarence Darrow did tread. Darrow had taken on Leopold and Loeb's case to fight despite the fact, as I previously mentioned, that in 1894, 30 years before, Darrow's client had been found guilty of the assassination of, of the Chicago mayor. And despite Darrow's best efforts on behalf of his client, whom he also argued in saying Patrick Pendergast had been convicted and hanged, escaping the noose appeared to be at best, a long shot for Leopold and Loeb in this case, as there was no doubt as to their guilt, both having already confessed to the kidnapping, hideous murder of Bobby Franks, and the atrocious scarification by acid of his corpse afterwards. There was no way around these facts. There simply wasn't. And there was, there was no dispute. But Darrow had other plans for the prosecutors, clients, and court. Hey, thanks for listening. And when we return, we're going to be approaching the heart of the matter. Hey, thanks for listening. Have a good day and goodbye.
worse than I have no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end And there was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold Lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high sea